This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at WorkingForestsInitiative.com. There is no Republican city, and there are no red and blue counties, much less red or blue states. There are red and blue densities, and that's an incredible fact. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ezra Klein. So today's show is about, I think, one of the most important questions in American politics right now. Can we have a saner right? Can we have a, a Republican Party or even just a right coalition in this country that is less extreme, that is more interested in actually proposing and crafting solutions to problems, that is more interested in compromise, more interested in dialogue? Uh, I know it gets controversial when you say this, but I don't think at this point there is all that much argument that the Republican Party has become something quite different than it was even 20 years ago. And that those differences, that asymmetric polarization that the people like Mann and Ornstein have documented so well, is perhaps the central force pulling the political system into a kind of crisis. There are a lot of solutions at work if you have two parties that are more or less acting normally. There are not a lot of solutions at work if you don't. So my guest today is Will Wilkinson. Will's a guy I've known a long time. When I met him, and we talk about this a bit, he was a libertarian working at the Cato Institute. He's had an interesting ideological journey that, that we discuss in the show. And now he's a vice president and the director of research at the Niskanen Center, which is a new organization trying to pull the right to become more of a center-right party, trying to imbue the right with a more positive and I think it's fair to say moderate agenda. And I want to have this conversation with Will because I think this is both a very noble project and I wonder if it's not a doomed project. I think it would be healthier for our politics to, to have that work. But also, is the effort itself a misunderstanding of why the Republican Party has become the creature and the institution and the organization that it is? Um, so we talk a bit about that. We also talk a lot about a report Will's working on, which turns out to be incredibly on point for my interests, about how density and the ways density is attracting different kinds of people and the kind of politics of density are behind and driving a lot of polarization in this country. So this is one of these conversations that I, I came into excited, but it turned out really, really, really well. There's a, a huge amount here that I've been thinking about that I think you all will be thinking about too. Before we jump into it, we're still taking questions for the Ask Me Anything. I'll be taking them for about another week. But if you have one, this is the time to send it in to EzraKleinShow at Box.com. Uh, again, if you've got a question for the upcoming Ask Me Anything episode, that is EzraKleinShow at Box.com. All that said, here's Will Wilkinson. Will Wilkinson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Ezra. So we've known each other a long time. 
Yeah, it's been a while. And when we met, you were you were a libertarian, man. I was. I was. What happened? Mm-hmm. Well, I changed my mind about a lot of things uh, over time. Um, when we first met, I was at the Cato Institute, I believe. Uh, you had just come to town uh, working for the American Prospect. Yep. Is that what you were doing? Yeah. And, and The glory and, days. And, and I think the first interactions I like remember with you, not socially, but you know, like professionally were, you know, wrangling over social security privatization. Uh, That's probably is that, right. Is that right? Yeah. I, I, think so. you know, I remember you wrote a paper on what Rawls would have thought of social security privatization. And I remember thinking that I just like, I don't even know how to, how to think about um, what Rawls would have thought of social security privatization. And, and I'm either yeah. out of my depth or he's arguing something irrelevant and I couldn't figure out which one. But, but that sounds um, right. 2005, that would have been about the time. Yeah, irrelevant, I think, was the, uh, <laughs> was, was the correct uh, interpretation of that. Uh, yeah, but th- that, you know, gets a little ways towards, uh, you know, how my thinking was going. I'd been a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Maryland and, uh, you know, bombed out right before I started my dissertation. I was doing a lot of work in liberal political theory, so it was up to my gills in Rawls, who uh, was at the time, I, mean, I guess maybe still is, the sort of dominant figure in uh, Anglo-American um, political philosophy. And, uh, you know, I w- was really impressed by Rawls, right? So I had been a you know, I got into politics and philosophy um, through a kind of libertarian route. I I read Ayn Rand, you know, between my freshman and sophomore year of college, while I was you know being a tour guide for my church, you know, showing people around Joseph Smith's um, house in Nauvoo, Illinois, uh, and I, you know, I read Atlas Shrugged, and I was like, "Oh man, this is amazing!" Right? Like my my dad was a cop, my mom's a nurse. I didn't have some fancy education, uh, and got super into philosophy. Got super into libertarian stuff. What What about Atlas Shrugged appealed to you? What about it appealed to me? Um, uh, that's a interesting question. You know, you know, it, it it's probably not a very general answer. I think it's weirdly autobiographical. Like I just, you know, mentioned in passing, I was working for my church at the time, the which was used to be called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's a, you know, a, a sect of Mormonism. It was the um, basically the anti-polygamists who stayed in the Midwest when uh, Brigham Young's faction went to Utah. There's a and literalism to the name of that church that I really admire. It's now called the Community of Christ uh, in order to no, bummer. Uh, you know, sharpen the brand distinction. <laughs> uh, but it, but it, it's a you know it's it's a more liberal form of Mormonism, and it's deeply, deeply, deeply committed to altruistic public service. Um, and you know the the best thing that you can do with your life is um, serve others, right? And my parents lived that way. You know, I, and they were public servants. They helped people. And the thing that really appealed to me about Ayn Rand, uh, Atlas Shrugged, and the Fountainhead was just the permission to be just kind of like individually awesome, right? Like that you didn't have to justify your life by um, making other people's lives better, that you could just be awesome and that by being awesome, there'd be like 
some trickle down. There'd be some like spillover that the reason that people are well off at all is that awesome people are being awesome and doing awesome stuff and their awesome stuff just kind of, you know, floods down and everybody um, benefits from it. So for me, it was it was it was largely that it was like the sense that like, hey, I can, you know, it's OK if I don't want to build houses in Guatemala. Like I can just try to be the best that I can be. And there's something really noble about that. And I think that that specific appeal is only going to be there if if you are raised in such a uh, an almost suffocating ethos of public service that the you know the idea that you would just like start a band and just try to be awesome and famous would be like you know like that's not what you do right like you become a public servant you like devote your lives to you know helping other people in a very you know embodied gritty way i'm um, terrified that you have just given me a, a dire vision of how my son will rebel against me in the future yeah, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm very, I'm very cautious about that with my own kid. You know, like I, don't, I, I don't want him to think that uh, I, don't, I, don't, I'm not. Don't go too heavy on the things that I dislike, uh, so that, uh, <laughs> so that he doesn't, uh, you know, get any ideas about how to, how to react. But I got into that stuff, you know, and it took me into the rest of the sort of libertarian tradition. I got into Hayek, all this other, uh, this much larger literature, this much larger tradition, the classical liberal tradition. Um, and, 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 and I approached it in a similar way that, you know, so like Ayn Rand basically made me an atheist. Like that was one of the effects of, of reading Atlas Shrugged while I was, uh, you know, giving tours of Joseph Smith's house is that like, I came out of that summer as like, oh, I guess I don't believe in God anymore. But I still had this, you know, the, the, this missionary zeal of a, of a, of a kid who wants to do right. Um, who's part of like a really minor sect where you have this defensive need to just like justify the idea that, uh, you, you know, because like Mormonism itself is weird, right? And, uh, you know, no offense to Mormons, just like weird in the sense of uh, it's unusual and it's new as a religious tradition. Uh, and then when you're in like the the small minority sect of Mormonism, that's even weirder, right? Um, and And you're like, there's a kind of presumption in it that how did I get so lucky to be born into the one true religion? And I think anybody who's in that position, there's a natural tendency to seek justification for um, your access to this truth that other people have been excluded from. And part of that motivation is trying to understand why it is true so that you can you know share the gospel you can spread the word right and I think I approached to libertarianism like that once I became I had the zeal of a convert and I got really into the tradition uh, and you know and I, and I tried to learn everything about it so that I could spread the word right like yeah this is it you know I, I figured it out but like now now that I've got a hold of the truth I have to like let other people know but as you start to encounter good arguments against these positions and I you know as I said I was in graduate school, ended up in graduate school uh, for philosophy. And that's, you know, a direct effect of getting excited about philosophy through Ayn Rand. Um, once I was in graduate school, you know, I started encountering lots and lots of arguments about like why some of the stuff that I thought was like amazing and obviously true was really problematic, right? And so you start to tackle those arguments and try to show what's wrong with them. And you try to shore up your views so that it's no longer quite so vulnerable to those objections. And as you iterate that process over time, you find that you've amended your position 
quite a lot, right? Each each little amendment to immunize it against any particular objection seems small, right? Like that, it's not like a big concession. Not like, oh, if I just you know concede this thing, and uh, then you know my, my my flank there is secure and I can move forward confidently. But you keep iterating that process, and over time, you've you know it's like a process of natural selection. There's like the, all of these tiny adaptations, and over time. Um, the accumulation of adaptations leaves you with a view that's actually quite a bit different than what you started with. And that process happened to me while I was at Cato. So I ended up writing weird things like papers about like what John Rawls would think about social security privatization. Um, but the that was coming out of the fact that I took Rawls really, really, really seriously and was in the time in the middle of a project to show that John Rawls and uh, Friedrich Hayek were actually saying the same thing um, with a different emphasis and that once you understood how they fit together and got rid of what Rawls got wrong and got rid of what Hayek got wrong, you'd end up with the superior, you know, dialectically synthetic view uh, that would that, that that would take you forward. And that, you know, I called it like Rawlsikeanism and people started calling that sort of fusion like libertarianism. And eventually, Rawlsakianism uh, didn't catch on. You know, <laughs> can, can you believe it? It's like so catchy. Right? You, you know, one, one question I have about this, and I wonder if I can phrase yeah. it without insulting literally everyone, is uh, one of my observations in politics is that people are motivated in their politics from different bases of support. And th there are some people who come into politics, and, and here I'm talking about people who really devote their lives to it, right? Not people who have a kind of generalized, like, I like the Democrats or I like the Republicans, but people really get into it. They work in it. You know, they, they spend all their time on it. There are some people who come into that on an issue base, right? They were radicalized around healthcare reform or something else. Um, then there are people who come into it on a philosophical base. Uh, and I, I found this to be very prevalent among libertarians. There are people who come into it on a religious base. Um, and, and, you know, there are a couple others, uh, you know, there are people come into it from a group base. Um, but one of the things that I often think is difficult in, in arguing about politics is that depending on what is really the bedrock of people's political commitments, the arguments can just take place in different languages. Um, you know, so if you take someone like me who tended to come in on an issue base, um, and I'm not saying it's better or worse than the other things, I'm just saying it is. And so I wanted to have a lot of detailed arguments about how to construct a healthcare system. And then I would often find myself completely confused talking to people who were more philosophically driven because it just, I just didn't care. Um, not, not, the not the philosophy isn't important, but that the question of the first principles just never made much sense because to me, the world never reflects first principles. And I think I've been reading a lot of political psychology recently that this is actually a pretty big difference in the left and right coalitions, that there's a lot more respect for tradition psychologically among people who end up on the right and um, th then on the left. And among the many things that creates translation problems when people want to discuss politics, like that is one of them, like how much you care about the lineage you're in and the first principles of which you're in um, can, can really end up with a uh, comprehension problem if you're talking to somebody who just, you know, those those appeals to that kind of authority just don't track. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think one of the things, one of the, you know, you, you've had, like, you know, Matt Grossman on before and, you know, his book with uh, uh, Hopkins on uh, asymmetrical polarization, right? Like there's just differences in the left-right coalitions in American politics and the left coalition um, is 
really diverse. It's got it's it's multi ethnic. Um, it's you know combines people in relative poverty with really highly paid white collar, highly educated professionals. Right? There's just there's just a huge number of different interest groups to herd together into the single coalition. And 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 the right isn't like that. It's it's uh, and and we can talk uh, a little bit further, maybe uh, uh, in a bit about how this came about. But the but the right coalition is you know incredibly homogenous. It's older white Christian people who live in low density locations, and they tend to have the same personality types. Even right, like it's a really homogeneous population. And that makes it easier to have a a narrative or a philosophy or a theory that ties all of those people's interests together. Uh, like on the left, it's just you can't have a an, a theory of the Democratic Party because it's such a varied thing. Um, I don't think there's really that much of a difference in terms of like interest in historical lineage between. You know, left and right exactly. Like I think that's something that's common among highly educated, high engagement political people. Um, so the people who are most like libertarians are socialists. Really, uh, they're kind of mirror images of one another. And if you talk to a committed socialist intellectual, they'll go on. You know, for freaking ever. I mean, it's just absolutely tedious about all these, like, you know, the history of socialism and the labor movement and all of these tiny disputes between obscure figures on the left and and they have very strong opinions about, you know, <laughs> these conflicts between different German socialists in the nineteen twenties or something like that. You know, but that's not characteristic of the left in total because, you know, that isn't the same story that uh, you know, African Americans who are rooted in the civil rights movement um, want to tell about themselves. It's not the same story, right? And it's not the same story that Hispanic Americans want to tell about themselves, right? So there's not like a unifying narrative that binds the left together. Um, and you know, usually on the right, the the unifying narrative is it's made up, it's invented, uh, it's it's you know made up out of bad history and snippets of bad philosophy, but it is attractive to the you know full run of people on the right because they're also similar to each other. So I want to put I I promise we're going to come back to libertarianism and how you left it and 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 yeah. Niskanen because I I want to do all that but I, I actually want to talk about this for a minute because it's something that's very much on my mind. So you brought up the Grossman podcast um and and I and Matt is at Niskanen as well, right? He's a, he's a he's a non-resident senior fellow right. of the Michigan. So and people yeah. should go back and listen to that podcast. It's a couple months back, and, and and it's about the ways in which a Democratic and Republican coalitions are different. And I have great um, admiration for Matt's research and and Dan Hopkins' research. Who they're they're co-authors on all this. The question that I felt he couldn't that he didn't answer to my satisfaction in that discussion was, okay, but then why are their institutions so different? The thing that I find myself struggling with when trying to understand the left and the right, and I think this actually relates very much to the project Niskanen is in and whether or not it will be successful, is I can talk Tom Blue in the face about differences between the Democratic and Republican coalitions, but I don't understand exactly why that then leads to 
on the right, I would say, media organizations that do not adhere to standards of journalistic professionalism and excellence that you see in the mainstream media or, frankly, on the in, in, in most parts of the left-ish media. Um, I think the right-wing think tanks have often been worse. I think the rejection of academia in general has been very poisonous on the right. And so I've been trying to look more into that. And, and this is where I think I part from, from the story you just told. One of the things that does seem interesting, particularly among the media scholars who study this, is if you look at the message of a lot of right-wing media, its message is, we are more American than you. It's me- mm-hmm. When it is attacking somebody, the way it is attacking them is to read them out of an American tradition. And when you look at left-wing media, its message is, we are smarter than you. If you look at Rachel Maddow or Chris Hayes or Trevor Noah or John Stewart or, or any of that, its message is, is, is we are smarter than you, right? We're right and you're wrong. And, you know, there's I, I'm still trying to work my way through the psychological arguments on this, but there's a veneration similarly for the founding fathers on the right that I just don't think you see a, a, a corollary to on the left. And th- there's something about that admiration and respect for a certain kind of tradition and traditionalism. I mean, even if you just look at recent presidents, I don't think there's really anything on the left that compares to the way the right tries to justify things in terms of what Ron- what Ronald Reagan would have thought about it. It's a little less true now with Donald Trump, and 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 I think that raises some interesting questions. But but there's something there that it seems interesting to me. To to me, one of the weaknesses of of the Grossman Hopkins book, now that I've sort of worked my way through more of it, mm-hmm. is that I think like a lot of us, like a lot of um, people who study this, there is a resistance and a fear of getting into the psychological literature because it feels like you're pathologizing one side or the other. But since all (laughs) political coalitions are made up of people who have psychologies and those psychologies, I mean, this is inarguable, do on net differ between the two coalitions. There's something there that is creating different preferences. And I think those different preferences are behind more of the institutional and even conversational conflict than we quite have the language currently to comfortably describe. Yeah. Well, I I don't think we actually disagree. Um, People on the left and the right are different. So this big project that I've been working on for the past year, um, uh, which is largely tries to explain increasing polarization in terms of the sort of filtering and sorting effects of long-term urbanization, right? What I'm trying to explain is the homogeneity of the right coalition, like how it came to be so uniform. Um, and the in these terms, right? Like, and so the, the parties, as I'm sure you're aware, are, are just, it's, it's, it's just astonishing. There's just, there's this cleavage just on population density where one party flips to another. And on average, it's around, you know, 900, a thousand people per square mile, right? Like, and that's, you know, right between, you know, in the border between the inner and outer suburbs. That's like kind of the 50 50 Republican Democratic zone. And the more dense you get, uh, the more Democratic you get. And the less dense what, you what, get. What kind of city, just so people have it in their heads, like what kind of city is at that 900, 1000 level that people might know? Maybe it's not even a city that we're talking about, right? Well, that, 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 <laughs> it, it, in, in 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 some sense, that's. But a, are we talking <laughs> about like the outer ring suburbs of somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah. Not to be a dick about it, but that's not that, that's not the right way to phrase the question because every city has a huge variety right. of density. So there's a there's a political scientist at Stanford, uh, Jonathan Rodden, who's done amazing work on uh, you know density and uh, party identification, uh, and and it's incredible. It's almost, it gives you almost this fractal sense. There's a good visualization of it on the New York Times uh, that maybe you can 
put a link to where you get the same Democratic or Republican vote share at the same densities absolutely everywhere. And even small towns, I mean, like my hometown, Marshalltown, Iowa, um, it's a town of about 27,000 people. And the older your town is, the more likely it is to have a relatively dense downtown business district. Like, so old downtown part of relatively small towns uh, will have be at the density level that's democratic. They go democratic. It's just that that county is probably not going to go democratic because overall the 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 proportion of the population that's in that higher density versus lower density is is more. So I just, I'm going to stop you real quick for a clarifying question. So one of the things you're saying here, just so I make sure I'm clear on it, is one might assume that if you hold density relatively constant, um, that 1,200 person per square mile place in California will be pretty blue in a way that that 1,200 person per square mile place in Michigan or even more to the point South Carolina might be pretty red. And what you're saying, if I understand you, is that that's not actually true, that it holds pretty constant across place. It's pretty constant. I mean, the, the, the variation is going to depend largely on the ethnic composition of the population. So a whiter place, the point at which um, density flips from Democratic to Republican will be a higher density. And if it's a really multicultural place, um, it stays Democratic further out into the suburbs. And that's largely because of the ethnic composition of the population. But overall, it, it is remarkably consistent. So like one way to say it is that there is no Republican city and there are no red and blue counties, much less red or blue states. There are red and blue densities. And that's an incredible fact, which demands a, an explanation. Um, like why is it that that's the case? Uh, you know, let me back up a second, right? The most important thing that's happened in human life over the past several centuries is urbanization. Right? People have moved, the human population all over the world has gravitated from the countryside towards the city. It's just a massive glacial change that is incredibly transformative. It leads to all sorts of dramatic social consequences. Um, but that 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 means that the trend of migration over time is relatively one way in terms of density. It's going from more less dense to more dense. And that means over time, as urbanization goes on, people are filtering out of the lower density areas to the higher density areas. So what predicts that they end up in the higher density area. Like what like an analogy I like to give is that is that like urbanization to understand it, it's like you have to imagine cities as like a big like electromagnet whose magnetic attraction gets stronger and stronger over time. And individuals have a bunch of attributes that are more or less magnetic. So like you have a big magnet on the middle of a table and you randomly distribute ball bearings of different metals all around the table. Um, the most, you know, the most magnetic ones will cluster at the magnet first. The less magnetic ones will sort of drift in later, and the least magnetic ones will, you know, if it's aluminum, it's not magnetic at all, right? It'll just stay out there, um, scattered about. 
right? And so what are the magnetic traits? The magnetic traits are first pass is just ethnicity. Like if you're non-white, your chance of being in a city is very, very high. So that gives you a, you know, basically a distinction between multicultural cities, you know, like higher densities are more multicultural and lower densities are more homogeneously white. All right. So that gives you like one distinction. And then over time, for reasons that you've had people cover really well on your show, um, the parties have become sorted on that distinction as well. So um, Republican and Democratic party loyalty is, uh, is you know, pretty cleanly sorted on white, non-white. Um, and it has become more so. Um, and then secondarily, then, then, then what, right? Like, so the non-white population is almost entirely in the cities, but the white population isn't. So what's the difference between the white people who urbanized and the white people who didn't urbanize? And this is what gets you into the political psychology. So there's, you know, there's a big literature uh, that um, I'm sure you're aware of that, you know, looks for uh, personality correlates of ideological tendencies like left and right. And there's a bunch of these constructs, uh, a bunch of these different theories. You know, Jonathan Haidt has like his moral foundations theory. There are all these theoretical constructs, you know, social dominance orientation, authoritarianism, things like that, that, that there are partisan differences in. But the main um, theory in personality psychology is like the big five theory of personality um, that you know statistically isolates five relatively independent personality dimensions. And two of them are relatively strongly correlated with left-right disposition on social issues, but not economic issues. And those attributes are openness to experience and conscientiousness. Um, and I can go a little bit into what those are, but- Do it. Uh, do it. Let's but, go. Uh, Buckle up, everybody. Neuroticism and conscientiousness. Let's do it. <laughs> it's not neuroticism. Neuroticism doesn't seem to be uh, strongly correlated to anybody's ideology. Is that true? Neuroticism isn't strongly correlated? I thought that it was. Um, it comes in an interesting So like- you know, the, you know, no, nothing happens in isolation, right? Like, so if you've got like five basic dimensions of personality, right? And so the five, the, the big five are, you know, are, let me not do this. Are, let me not take us down a rabbit hole. Ta talk about the two that are the big ones, openness to experience and conscientiousness. Yeah. So, so high openness predicts sort of dispositional liberalism on social issues. Low openness predicts sort of dispositional liberal um, conservatism on social issues, but again, not on economic issues and high openness uh, what that is is basically intellectual curiosity. Um, you know, you, makes you want to travel. Like a high openness person is just curious. You're going to read the newest book. You're going to like cities. You're going to like to go to the newest restaurant. Uh, you're going to like take electives in college just because it's kind of interesting. Um, you're going to, and this is, I think, an important piece. You're going to potentially like the feeling of changing your mind. You're going to like the feeling of changing, changing your mind. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of what it sounds like. Um, openness to experience, like so, it, it, and each of these dimensions is just like the way they're it's constructed as like a you know a, as a theory. They're they're relatively normally distributed throughout the population. So most people are you know medium openness, um, in the same way that. You know, most people are by definition average IQ, um, and and so it's you know, you know, you get more left as you go more towards the high openness tail, and you get more right as you go towards the low openness tail, 
And low openness is, you know, you're just just the opposite. You're just relatively incurious. Um, there's a tendency to like familiarity, to dislike change, to seek comfort. You kind of think of a uh, high openness people as like your strategy is explore and the low openness people that your strategy is like nest. So you just like hunker down, you invest in your family, your tribe, um, and you protect them and you, uh, you know, it's highly solidaristic. And at the other end, it's way more individualistic. You kind of wander off, you try things out, you see how things fit, you find stuff out, right? And, and these are really pretty fundamental differences that correlate with a ton of things. The other dimension is conscientiousness. It doesn't correlate as strongly, but it's still pretty strong. It's very significantly correlated with people's social views. And conscientiousness, like in that, you know, like openness kind of, you know, especially you know, most of the people who are listening to this are high openness people, right? Like, like people select very heavily on openness into education, into idea based careers. Um, that fact is part of, you know, like why universities are so left-leaning. Um, if you want to get a PhD in, you know, Renaissance English literature, you're not a low openness person, right? That just would be boring as shit for a low openness person, right? Like you have to be, have like a kind of a weird curiosity about stuff that's distant from you. Um, but that because that same disposition leads people to a kind of left-leaning view about social issues, it creates a kind of homogeneity in universities in the same way that low openness creates kind of homogeneity in these sort of lower density areas. And you know, why it does is for you know, a couple of reasons. One, openness predicts your desire and propensity to migrate. Right? Like, so lower openness people are less likely to want to move in the first place. If the trend of migration overall is towards cities, uh, if there is some difference at the individual level in terms of your desire to migrate over time, people who want to migrate more are going to filter towards cities. People who want to migrate less are going to stay behind. It's just that's kind of obvious. But the other thing that like low openness strongly predicts, and you've talked about a lot of this in your this kind of thing in your show, is uh, views on race and ethnicity. So lower openness people score higher in, you know, what political scientists call racial resentment. They score higher in uh, in ethnocentrism. So basically every way that there is of measuring people's in-group favoritism, out-group hostility, right? Those are higher in lower openness people. Um, and cities have become more diverse over time, uh, much more diverse since the 60s. And so the people with the least propensity to migrate um, also are most diverse to diversity. And so you have another reason why white dispositional conservatives are less likely to urbanize. And when you combine those kinds of things uh, over time, you know, millions and millions of people moving over decades and decades, it filters the population. You end up with this sort of uh, relatively homogenous, lower openness population. And those people are the people who are most hostile to diversity and most um, wary of social change generally. And that can have a pretty big consequence, especially when you add a couple other things. But I'm like, just like kind of going on and on. So I'm, no, 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 this is great. I, I'm 
totally surprised we're having this conversation, but I'm so glad we are because this is actually the the, the specific strain of research that I'm waist deep in right now. Um, I want to add an idea into this one that I found helpful. You mentioned Jonathan Haidt's work here, uh, but I actually find one of his colleagues at NYU, John Jost, to be really, really clear on this stuff. And I was actually just talking to him last week, and he has this concept of elective affinities. Mm-hmm. And and the idea is that there are affinities between certain psychological orientations and then certain other things, maybe ideas, maybe places you might live. The the nice way he puts it in one of his papers is that there's obviously a way in which people choose ideas, but there's also a way in which ideas choose people. Mm-hmm. And that we 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 need to have the kind of, as you put it, that magnetic pull in as a variable in all this. And one of the things that I think is tricky about this theory and this way of talking about it is that then people, well, they look back and they say, well, then why all this change, right? If, you know, if what, if what you're basically saying is Republicans score low on openness and high on conscientiousness and Democrats score low on conscientiousness and high on openness, well, why does everything feel so different? Why is everything changing? And this to me has been a big, a big kind of point of breakthrough for me in, in, in this book chapter I'm working on, which is there is a connection between the party sorting story and the psychological stories mm-hmm. that the Republican and Democratic parties, for all kinds of reasons, the Dixiecrats in the South, the, the ways in which people did not have as much freedom to move or freedom to sort, the parties were not nearly as sorted across um, really any of these things. I mean, if you no. look at that research around around authoritarian personality types, it was not nearly as sorted if you go back 50 years um, or, or go back as far as they can go back, I should say. And if you look at some of this, it, it, it wasn't sorted too, right? I mean, you had lots of people who were very, very low on openness to experience and very, very skeptical of demographic change and, and racial equality um, locked into the Democratic Party in the South. Yeah. So you had these parties that didn't sort in these ways. Mm-hmm. But then the parties, but really everything, right? The parties, the media choices that the people have, the places people live, they all began sorting. And I think in a in a kind of flywheel way, accelerating the sorting of each other across these. And so now you have these- Everything started to line up. Yeah. Now you have these political parties that are very and increasingly psychologically different and then are being served by idea merchants and business models that are differentiating on the psychological differences. I mean, so to go back to that thing I was saying about the media, you know, if you go back 30 or 40 years, there was some partisan-oriented media on all different sides, but there just wasn't that much and it wasn't that mass. Um, you know, there you were probably beginning, I'd have to run the numbers exactly, but, you know, beginning to get talk radio in that period. Um, and certainly you'd had some talk radio going back if you look to the 50s and, and even, I guess, earlier the 30s with Coughlin, but it wasn't, it really blew up conservative talk radio around Limbaugh. Um, but you didn't have Fox News yet. You certainly didn't have this profusion of websites and people you can follow on Twitter and all the rest of it. But but as you do, as a market becomes much more competitive and you have much more choices, I mean, well, a hyper-competitive market um, segments the market into smaller and smaller slices. Right. And you have to do it based on how people are different from each other. And these are the ways in which the, the, the two sides are different from each other. So to me, one of, the, one of the big things is recognizing that kind of everything in politics now has what you're describing as this increasing magnetic uh, capacity or what I might describe in a less, I think, vivid way as this increasing elective capacity where you're just beginning to sort much more strongly. And every mm-hmm. time you do, that like locks you into another thing that then locks you into all of the others. And now you end up with these very, very different coalitions that act in very different ways. 
uh, it's a bit of a scary process. Um, and it's a bit of a scary process to realize that you're inside of, right? I mean, everything you just described, right, about mm-hmm. openness to experience, it, it pretty well describes me and it certainly describes much of the um, appeal of the show. Right. So like I'm part of that machine and I'm catering to people who are that way. This is high openness media, right? Like just like talking about ideas, you know, and and I've spent, you know, most of my professional life in the kind of intellectual professional class of the right. And those are the highest openness people on the right, right? Like, like uh, uh, who, who like me might actually be like super high openness people, just really dispositionally liberal. Um, but, you know, just facts about your history um, led you to come up uh through one tradition rather than another. I wanted to throw a word of caution in about the about the sort of personality differences on the left and right. Like the personality psychology does not help you understand very much why somebody's a, a Democrat in general, right? Like it helps you understand why white people are Democrats, right? It, it, so because almost all very, 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 very large majorities of African-Americans, Hispanic, Asian voters are pretty reliable Democrats these days. And because these personality traits are relatively normally distributed through the population, that means that the Democratic coalition is more diverse in terms of personality types. There's just as many low and high openness black people as there are low and high openness white people. Um, The Democratic coalition has to accommodate lower openness non-white people in a way that the right coalition doesn't have to accommodate higher openness anybody. Right. So that like that's, again, just like points to some of the strategic difficulties uh, that the left have tend to have on coordinating around priorities on a single narrative, because um, it's really just more diverse at every single level. Um, so I, but it, but it's more to like just like throw that uh, word word of caution in, because um, what, what you're really talking about when you're doing the personality stuff is understanding why um, why. You know, the personality literature basically tells you the difference between left and right white people because ethnicity swamps this other stuff in terms of party ID. Yeah, I would um, say there's a lot you want to be careful with in the in this literature. In fact, like a lot of the reason I'm excited to talk about it is that so much of what I'm struggling with right now is this literature is very suggestive, but I don't think it proves very much. Um, I think it is the 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 way we ask these questions is very it's in some ways kind of vague. It gets you very yeah. noisy data. Like you know, one yeah. of the good things is we often have these questions asked across different countries. So you uh, again, John Josh has done some really good, huge meta analysis studies. Um, you know, we'll have hundreds of thousands of different um, participants if you if you combine all the mm-hmm. different studies, and so you can see things, but you're going to have correlations in that that are like 0.2, 0.3. And I mean, it matters and you're getting yeah. at this stuff imprecisely, but it's not so strong that you can say, hey, oh, you know, slam dunk case on this. But yeah. I do I do want to go back to something you said that I do think is important here, which is that one of the things that you might predict out of this uh, is that the core cleavage in politics would either be or particularly as these things sort would be becoming how you feel about racial diversity and yes. different kinds of diversifying demographics. And I would say we're very much seeing that. I mean, if, if you were to predict what would uh, a, a polity cleaved by these kinds of psychologies, what kind of conflict would that create? It would be the conflict we're seeing right now. Um, and so to, it's one thing that gives me a little bit more confidence in this in that I think it makes a prediction that is more or less being borne out. Yeah, me too. I mean, you've had, uh, you know, you know sides Tesla and Vavrik on your show. And I'm always tr- struggling to get media people, journalists, um, wonk types to really 
grasp the depth of the level of low engagement of ordinary voters are and the their level of ignorance about stuff that you know fans of vox articles and podcasts you know take for granted as common knowledge people don't know anything right like and that's not like a, a knock against anyone it's just like people just have better things to do man they want to watch the game they don't want to watch the news right they want to you know they got they, they got they got shit to do i mean like like people just don't pay attention to politics they don't know and they don't care the way i was trying to put this your word fan i think is important here people who are into politics um there is some subset into it because materially like it is really really crucial for them but most people are into politics in a fan exactly way. they they like they're into it it's they've got a team and they you know politics is great because if it's your hobby you also get to carry around the smug sense of civic duty but most people who do it you know they do it in the way they they follow a baseball team or or they're into video games or you know whatever it is they might they might care about and the people who don't know about politics know a lot about other things, yeah. right? There's this tendency to, to create that as a, as if it is a domain knowledge that says something deep about you as no. a person. Um, but it's really that we give this one domain of knowledge, and I think for reasonable reasons, but but nevertheless, we give it a kind of social charge that makes it seem like a serious person. But, you know, look, like I'm, I have a lot of experience at this point with people who follow politics, and I don't think that it says that much about, um, you know, the, the, the virtue of those in it. No, no, it doesn't. And the, but the thing is, like, but the inability to get um, how deep public ignorance goes is 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 like a real impediment to like understanding how things work. Like, there's a real good distinction that I like from like Jason Brennan sums it up nicely. He's a political philosopher at Georgetown. He just like divides the electorate up into he calls it like hobbits, hooligans, and Vulcans, right? Like, and and most of us are hobbits. Almost all of us are hobbits, right? We just like you know putter around, you know, our little villages, um, you know, smoking pipeweed and, you know, having festivals and we, you know, we don't just don't pay attention. Um, it's not something hobbits do. Um, then there are hooligans who are like fans, right? Like, like, like rabid soccer fans. And those are the people who watch cable news, right? Those are the people who read the newspaper. Like if you read the newspaper for politics at all, you're already a hooligan, right? like distinguishing yourself from the hobbits. And then lastly, there's, you know, a class of people, which includes like seven people, probably including us, like the Vulcans, which are people who, you know, try super hard to like understand politics, um, and, you know, like political scientists are Vulcans, right? Like, and, and, and to a first approximation, there are no Vulcans. So like, oh, you know, so everybody's a hobbit. Um, almost, you know, everybody's a hobbit. You know, there's a bunch of hooligans who dominate discourse about politics, but their interests and priorities are different. And the thing that Tesla found that I found amazing was simply that, the, like, that Obama becoming president created this big shift of less educated white voters into the Republican Party. And the reason why is that nobody, they just didn't know which party was like the white person party and which party was the civil rights party until there was something so salient as a black guy as president. And they're like, oh, I guess the Democratic Party's not for me, which is depressing <laughs> that, 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 that that would happen. Um, but it, I think, says something really important about you know, how strong a cue needs to be in order to move people, right? So, so sorting on race didn't become as complete uh, as it is now until just a few years ago. And it's largely due to Obama's presidency. There are, were lots of working class whites who had these kind of vestigial relationships and loyalties to unions 
that, you know, had kind of like petered out over time because unions have been dying and the sort of that intergenerational stickiness of party loyalty does weaken over time. But, you know, they would have just drifted along voting Democrat for quite a while longer, probably until an African-American became president. And that signaled to them in a clear way uh, which party was which in terms of, um, you know, looking out for which ethnic group. Uh, and that helped complete this sorting. And that happened way before that happened before Trump. And it's one of the things that made Trump, you know, it helped him um, that that was that 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 sorting had gotten done before uh, he ran for president. In U.S. working forests or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource isn't water or gold or even oil. It's data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. These transactions are mostly invisible to us and worth billions. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for society? Join host Rafi Krikorian, Chief Technology Officer at Emerson Collective, for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. How do we advocate for ourselves and our privacy so that we can have control over our information and a say in how technology evolves? From surveillance to social media, reproductive rights to criminal justice reform, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity, encouraging us to remain technically optimistic in the face of big data. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. So I want to use this as an opportunity to pivot to, to Niskanen because I think this both this sets up actually a foundation for talking about what that project is and both why it is appealing to me and why I am in some ways pessimistic about it. So do you want to kind of in a quick version, you know, why you left libertarianism, like what what changed for you and 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 what the Niskanen Center is? Yeah. So so the Niskanen Center is a think tank. Uh, it's about four years old now. It was founded by uh, Jerry Taylor and Joe Kuhn, who are both ex-Cato people like me. Um, and most of our management is ex-Cato people. Um, and so we're all part of a sort of libertarian diaspora, <laughs> you know, like uh, refugees from the libertarian movement. And all of us in different ways have had um, some sort of you know conversion experience. And usually it's like a slow thing where you just like, as I mentioned at the beginning, you just kind of like find yourself persuading yourself out of it, even in the process of trying to defend it, right? Like you just start seeing that you're actually agreeing with people that you're um, arguing against uh, more than you're actually disagreeing with them. And so Jerry Taylor, who got us started, you know, was the energy policy guy at Cato for years, uh, eventually a VP. Uh, and, you know, he was effectively a professional climate denialist. And uh, at some point, after arguing about this for decades, was like, hey, wait, I'm full of crap. Um, like people have been snowing me uh, about what the science actually says. Like climate change is real. We're going to do something about it. 
It's a big hurry. Um, and there wasn't a lot of, you know, there wasn't a big place for that at Cato. And uh, Brink Lindsay and I, you know, both in our own way had, you know, indeed, you know, became libertarians. And so, you know, again, it started out as this kind of like, you know, soft libertarian place. But as as we got going, um, just detaching yourself from the organs and institutions of sort of official libertarianism and its funding base, um, you see that like you're unconstrained by, you know, the constraints of funders and that'll all. So, you you know, we started thinking out of the boxes that we'd been in and we pretty quickly drifted to our own thing that like I don't think even even soft libertarianism so we're we're characterizing ourselves as 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 moderates um you know which just sounds squishy but we can't think of a better <laughs> better better way to describe ourselves and the project that we've undertaken we started out as part you know libertarians are part of the traditional coalition on the right. And that's a vestige of the anti-communist coalition of the right. A lot of what Brink and I were doing at Cato was, was trying to make good on this thing that libertarians would often say. It was just like, well, we're neither really left nor right. Like we, you know, we, we, we're into, you know, legalizing prostitution and legalizing drugs and we're against the war in Iraq and blah, blah, blah. But effectively, like um, libertarians are part of the institutionalized right, and Brink and I got tired of that, and so we were building bridges to, you know, left of center magazines and and think tanks, and and that had a big effect on us too. It just like brought it brought us into the way liberals tended to think about things, and had the effect on us that being part of the right coalition has had on a lot of libertarians. You tend to just sort of make conservative priorities your priorities, right? Like in a way that doesn't really make sense from your own ideology. And when we got to Niskanen, you know, trying to work a lot of this out, we still felt like we're on the right in some sense, right? Like that's where our roots are. That's where all everybody we knows is like, and also that's where our like leverage is. We have relationships with people on the right. So, you know, when we started out, our business model was basically trying to convince moderate Republicans to come toward basically things that Democrats want to do on a number of key issues, like trying to get moderate Republicans to sign on to a carbon tax, trying to get moderate Republicans to endorse comprehensive immigration reform, right? Issues that badly need to have something done about them, but where the Republican Party's obstruction is the thing that's keeping it from happening, despite the fact that the public overwhelmingly wants to do something, right? And that seemed to be going pretty well. Um, and then uh, and we were expecting like everybody that Hillary Clinton would become president. And we were trying to position ourselves as being like an influence broker where, where we could bring along some of these Republican votes to get things like some climate le legislation, some immigration reform done um, under a you know, Hillary Clinton presidency, but yeah, yeah, you know, turned out she didn't win. <laughs> and I felt like in my entire life, like everything that I've been doing, uh, like in these libertarian institutions, these Koch funded institutions, like all of these seminars that I'd been to, all of this literature that I've been reading, I felt like the whole thing was like training for like knowing when an authoritarian comes into power and doing something about it. And so I was shocked when, you know, a lot of my friends on the libertarian right were, you know, just sort of like, oh, well, it's not as bad as you think, you know, well, Democrats are worse or, you know, like, and you could see how deep that kind of elective affinity with the right 
went, like, and how much that distorted people's sense of priorities. What at Niskanen, we were like, no, we got to do something. So we reoriented our entire thing, our entire set of priorities around helping organize the the center right in opposition to the direction that Donald Trump is taking the Republican Party uh, and the country. And now our our sort of project is to try to reinvigorate the moderate wing of the Republican Party and to try to articulate a philosophy for the center right that can be viable in the event that the Republican Party just completely collapses um, after the era of Trumpism. Like I'm predicting that it will. And one of the things that America most needs is to political parties that are liberal in the broad sense. Uh, and the thing that's basically ruining our politics is the asymmetrical polarization of the Republican Party, that the fact that they've gone so far to the right on a bunch of issues has basically you know, made policymaking screech to a halt. We can't do anything. And it's dangerous because of the rightward polarization of the GOP. And so our product project is to depolarize and to So I want yeah. I, I want to draw out a little bit of the the underlying vision here and get you to talk about that. Um and then I want to move over to that kind of project because I I'm curious about some of the strategic considerations in it. But in in the big Niskanen manifesto, you say that what makes you different is that you reject the market fundamentalism on the right and you reject the democratic fundamentalism on the left. And, and I think people on this show will probably be familiar with the idea of market fundamentalism on the right. But but when you talk about democratic fundamentalism on the left, what are you talking about? Um, I don't love that phrase, but like, you know, you're trying to figure out how to phrase things in this manifesto. Uh, that's what we came up with. So like we, what we say is the, you know, the, you know, the democratic fundamentalism is the mirror image mistake that in order to get the system to work, you just need- And I should say small d democratic from yeah, fundamentalism. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 fundamentalism of democracy. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's basically just a kind of statist assumption that, that, that the problem is just that we don't have enough power in the government. And that if we can just get more power to the government, um, shift more decision-making from, you know, private actors to, you know, elected officials or to unelected bureaucrats that somehow that's going to make things work out, right? And so like in the same sense that we reject market fundamentalism, it doesn't mean we don't like markets. We freaking love markets, man, right? Like we are market people, but we reject market fundamentalism in the sense that we understand that markets produce externalities. There are public goods that markets don't always produce uh, and that you need some level of uh, regulation to define the rules of the game and to make sure that the incentives stay, ali stay aligned with the public interest and that we need you know, government to do a bunch of stuff. We need social insurance. We need all sorts of public provision of things that otherwise wouldn't get provided. Right? And so we reject you know, market fundamentalism in that sense. We reject democratic fundamentalism in the sense of seeing democratic the democratic state is some sort of panacea, right? It's not. All of these institutions are intertwined. Like part of the point, like one of the reasons we, we reject market fundamentalism is that the state market opposition is, it's kind of like a false dichotomy. Um, I mean, like in my philosophical way, like Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, you know, like he had this theory of the mind-body dichotomy where he like, he got rid of it by 
just saying that, you know, everything had a little bit of mind in it. He called it neutral monism. <laughs> and, and I always think of my view about the market and state like Russell's neutral monism. I, I think of it as institutional, you know, like neutral institutional monism. There's not like market institutions and state institutions. There are just rules of the game. Um, there, some of them are, you know, defined by historical processes and conventions. Some of them are defined through statute and legislation. Uh, but it doesn't really matter about how the institutions come about or how they, um, you know, like what their genesis is. Uh, what matters is like how they work, like how they're aligning incentives, like whether they're getting things done or whether they're making things worse. Um, and we have a lot of problems in our system of democratic government, like my co-authors on this paper that you're talking about, the center can hold, Steve Tellis and Brink Lindsay, you know, wrote this book, The Captured Economy, which is an argument that a lot of the inequality that has risen over the past several decades is the consequence of you know rent seeking and regulatory capture and the solution to that isn't you can't just say like okay like um corporations are basically capturing the regulatory agencies that are supposed to regulate them so we just need to give those regulation regulatory agencies more power right like how does that help right like it doesn't help if they're captured right and so the question isn't like more power or less power. It's the overall set of incentives in the system that keeps things, you know, pushing in the direction of a general interest in the general welfare, in the common wheel. And there's not like a formulaic ideological solution for that. But let me push you on this a little bit, because I would say from a certain a certain strain of analysis, the question exactly is more power or less power. So, you know, I think what you're saying there is that Niskanen is is fundamentally a very technocratic institution. And the idea is that on some level, what it wants to bring to the design of both market and state solutions is a real attention to incentives and details and not a, an ideologically driven approach that is going to end sort of too far to one side or too far to the other, um, ignorant of the failures inherent in sort of unregulated capitalism or um incautious statism yeah. for for maybe lack of a better term. And I think the the argument you get in response to this is the problem on both sides, but particularly the problem in the the government solutions that you're pointing out is power. It is precisely often the compromises that are made with the market institutions in building government institutions that end up giving so much power to unelected sort of unaccountable um and non-voting entities. And similarly, um, you know, within the market side, there is this kind of the, these overwhelming concentrations of power. That's where you get a lot of the, the criticism right now of the monopolies or certainly the market concentrations. And one thing that I think is being pushed in an interesting way by, by the democratic socialist left right now is to try to re-imbue American politics with more of an analysis of power. And so while I don't always find the analysis here completely convincing, I think I think their view is that what they want to do is use a state to drain power from the market. So the market so market players are not able to ask for so many and get so many special favors out of the state. And in some and sort of roundabout way, that will actually lead both to more of the uh, state solutions that are a little simpler and a little less captured that you're that you're talking about. And also, you know, where there are markets markets that are work more like markets because the state has a power to regulate them. But 
If that's not a good theory, I'm curious what Niskanen's view of power or theory of power is. Because ultimately, you can craft the solution however you want, but 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 it really is over the long-term power that uh, governs how it is implemented. I don't know that we have a a theory of power, but like I agree with you. Like a large part of the problem is the system getting out of whack. I mean, like the like like Stephen Brink's book, the point of talking about all of this regulatory capture just is to say that um, a bunch of overpowered elites have captured a lot of the rulemaking apparatus to make rules that benefit them uh, at the expense of other people. But that presents a really thorny set of problems, right? When you have institutions that have gotten captured by the wrong people, um, you can't solve the problem by giving those captured institutions more power, right? Like you're just giving more power to the wrong people, right? If they're working on behalf or as agents of corporations or, you know, cabals of professions that are excluding people from their professions through, you know, onerous licensing requirements or what have you, right? Like you, you, you don't solve the problem by creating more regulatory authority for those people to abuse on their own behalf. And so you have to have a bigger theory about how you need to structure and govern these institutions to make sure that the power stays in the right people's hands. And that's really, really, really difficult. That's one of those things that I don't think anybody has actually does have a very good theory of. Like what we tend to emphasize is that a certain kind of one of the errors that people on the left make is a certain overly sunny technocratic managerialist view of the state where uh, like Steve has a great paper uh, called on kludocracy where you you keep making these like little incremental changes. Oh, this policy is broken. We'll put this patch on it. And then you put a patch on a patch and the patch and the patch and the patch and then a patch and the patch and the patch and patch. And then the over, like over time, the system becomes so convoluted. Nobody has any chance of understanding what that is other than the market players who have to navigate it. And that complexity itself gives is is one of the things that enables their ability to capture the regulatory institutions because nobody actually understands those the regulatory institutions other than the people who are regulated and if you're trying to find anybody with expertise they're going to be from the places that have been regulated according to these this incredibly byzantine set of rules um and it's funny in a in a way it sounds like the candidate who best reflects the the analysis you're talking about is actually Elizabeth Warren in a, in a lot of ways, uh, it, like, and so one of the great things about Niskanen is that we differ a lot. Uh, we've got a lot of internal diversity, so people like different candidates more and less. Um, Warren is my favorite of the Democratic candidates, partly because I think she, like Brink and Steve often say that, that uh, you know, that they're playing the same music, but she's like singing a different tune or something like that, uh, that she's concerned. I, she's got her finger on these issues about regulatory capture better than anybody else. The thing that I care about that I think she's got her finger on is just these questions of corruption uh, and the way our institutions have become incredibly self-dealing on behalf of powerful interests have gotten. This is like somewhere I didn't expect to get from my libertarian you know, background, but like I've become incredibly zealous about tax enforcement. Right? Like I, <laughs> I really, I think that Donald Trump came to power because of overly weak tax enforcement. Uh, and that over years where you've got a system- Not least of all on himself. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, and basically, if you if you if you let rich people steal money from the government by withholding it through their taxes, and they, they're you know the percentage of their fortunes that are effectively ill-gotten gains that have been withheld from the treasury, grow and grow and grow. Their incentive to um, like lock down that corruption and make sure the system doesn't unwind it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And I think we've gotten in this position where there is this like you know mighty battle between forces of like sort of global dark money and just mundane democratic representation that if you want a system in which you know people get to collectively decide what they want the rules to be they're fighting against this you know global cabal of autocrats in league with crooked tax evaders who are trying to make sure that the rules stay crooked so that they stay rich um, and I, you know, I didn't expect to get to that point from where I started, but I have. I've come to Trump has really changed how I see the value of the rule of law, how I see the value of representative democracy, and I think it's in big trouble. And we ought to want to do something pretty serious about that. And I think Warren is more serious about that set of issues than anybody else. One of the other things that, that's interesting in the in the manifesto. And I think speaks to the, the the shift from the libertarian theory of the case is the idea that the freest economies generally feature the biggest welfare states. Do you want to talk about that for a minute as a as a synthesis and and maybe a, a connection people ought to take more seriously? Yeah, I mean that's one of our big themes. It's been something I've been harping on for a long time, right? Like like the Cato Institute uh, and Heritage as well, um, you know, produce these indices of economic freedom. And so they rank all the countries in the world in terms of a set of measures that then they, you know, that are weighted and then they, you know, integrate them into, a, you know, a single score for economic freedom. And the understanding of economic freedom is loaded and ideological in a pro-free market libertarian sort of way, right? Um, still, Denmark, Sweden, countries like that come out really well on the economic freedom index. And you know, you know, like wait, 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 wait. What you know, like how how does that happen? Like they have huge welfare states, you know, and, and that really intrigued me even when I was at Cato, partly because you know, and that seems so counterintuitive. Partly because, and this is one of the things that I like about these indices, is they they force you to unpack your assumptions about what all of the constituents of economic freedom are. And once you lay them all out, you see that there's a hell of a lot more to it than just the size of government and you know, how much redistribution gets gets done. So the Cato and Heritage, you know, indices, you know, heavily penalize the Nordic social democracies for their level of redistribution, but they still come out well because they have super open economies. They it's, you know, they have relatively flexible labor markets. There's a bunch of stuff that they do really, really well. Small countries that basically have to be, you know, if they're going to have a high level of growth, need a high level of innovation and um, immense exposure to trade, um, they have deep incentives to be relatively open economies. But it also like points towards something else, which is that places that have these big welfare states, over time, a lot of them, they got these big welfare states because they all had a more sort of socialist period, but they were all relatively capitalistic countries in the middle of the century. They all went through a more socialistic phase. They had these big welfare states that then grew sort of sclerotic. There were these big internal political flights between the right and the left about reforming them. 
ultimately the kind of neoliberal market right won in the sense of that it was they, they were able to reform these economies in a way that made them more open and free and less regulated. And that was great because that higher level of economic freedom made those economies more productive, which allowed them to finance these really, really big welfare states. The problem was that they weren't going to be able to finance these incredibly generous social insurance programs if they had a more stagnant level of growth. So there's a pretty strong reason to believe that these big social insurance programs like you know there's you know you can look at it from two sides one you need some pretty go-go capitalism to finance a certain level of socialism and you need a certain level of socialism to get the political support you need for just the regular public to tolerate the amount of creative destruction that innovative economies do you have to insure them against the downside risks and there seems to be a really sustainable equilibrium in that that you know these Open free economies generate a high level of innovation and growth, which in turn finances generous social insurance and education and health programs, which in turn raise the level of human capital on average, which increases productivity, blah, blah, blah. It's a nice, it's a virtuous circle. And that's just what's there in the data, right? Like that's not what anybody's ideological theory tells you, right? Like people on the left tend to see the European, Northern European, Western European social democracies as being more socialist than they are. Um, you know, basically everybody in America agrees that they're more socialist than they are uh, on the left and the right. Um, but it's just a model that works. It's the model that works. You know, it's just like the liberal democratic capitalist welfare state. And there's a bunch of different versions of it. It works great. Um, and it is insane to just like do away with it. Right. So that's the sense in which I'm you know, like a conservative or a moderate, you go out and look at what actually works, and then you try to make those institutions better and protect but them. But this is where I wonder if the project isn't based on too much of a like a philosophically idealized idea of what it means to be a conservative or even a moderate, and 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 too little of a of a practical one, which is to go back to the whole conversation we're having about the different differing psychological foundations of the of the two sides and and what mm-hmm. they really care about. Niskanen seems to me to be an effort to reform the political system towards a, or advocate within the political system towards a form of, I would call it a cosmopolitan neoliberalism. You know, it's a kind mm-hmm. of open society, market-oriented, yeah. but respectful of the state. And totally that fair. seems like a project that has some traction, actually quite a bit of traction on the center left. Like if you sat down in a room with Barack Obama, I think there would be there'd be places of divergence, but there'd be a lot of places where you guys could talk or we were even just talking about Elizabeth Warren, who, you know, is, is certainly to the left of Obama and the right. I mean, first, when you the cosmopolitan thing, I think we're just seeing that what the Republican Party cares about is fighting that. Like before you get to any mm-hmm. of this economic stuff, before you get to how you structure the state or how you how you restrain the government, like the cosmopolitan side of it. Um, and you guys have, I think, some some thoughtful things to say about racial inequality and and other issues of discrimination um, in, in American life, that that is a non-starter. And that like the space for reform on the right seems to me to be towards a xenophobic populism where Donald Trump didn't fully activate what it was he promised to do. Um, but nevertheless, he showed that there was there was room for the Republican Party to be something different. But it seems to be something mm-hmm. different 
towards, on the one side, a more statist idea of the economy, and on the other, a less open idea of the country. Whereas what you want is a more open idea of the country, and in some ways, a less statist idea of the economy um, to, to combine. And so, to the, while you guys are framed as a center-right reform effort, is it the case that you're really a center-left reform effort? In just substantive terms, I don't think there's that much difference between center-right and center-left groups around the world. It's just kind of who your coalition partners are. I agree with you that that seems, you know, it seems really unpromising, right? Like, okay, so like as, you know, I'm saying, the right has gone down this xenophobic, ethnocentric, polarized path, and that has taken over the GOP. So like, how are you going to reform that? Right, like, like I, I think that's a, a really, really good question, and and the answer is just that the process that brought about that homogeneity in terms of ethnicity, education level, personality in the lower density population that has only had the political effects it's had because of the way our political system is structured. Right, like because we have a you know, first past the post, winner take all system that basically ensures that you get this two party equilibrium. Um, you know, so we've got a party system that's going to split the country roughly in half, plus the fact that our constitutional system creates this big bonus for lower density areas has allowed the Republican Party to win national elections with a shrinking minority of the population. I think people put too much stock in demographic inevitability arguments. There's no demographic inevitability, but but there is just like these trends are just relentless and they're ongoing. So like as urbanization keeps going on, as international immigration keeps going, as just population changes keep growing, uh, holding other things constant, like that that coalition just can't hold on. It just can't, right? That's the reason the GOP currently is so zealous about all of its sort of voter voter disenfranchisement efforts right like it's got already got this built-in structural bonus um given the way our electoral system is set up but that's not enough so they have to build a kind of firewall on top of that advantage you know you know making it harder for certain groups to vote you know disenfranchising felons like you know packing state supreme courts like just like the whole panoply of crazy stuff that the republican party is doing across the country they're like they know that they can't last as the party i, I you know in the paper that i've been working on i just call it the party of pastoral supremacy right they cannot keep existing as the party of pastoral supremacy unless they can kind of lock in these these disenfranchising mechanisms. Like if Trump gets completely wiped out, um, there's this devastating loss and the the Republican Party can't reassemble that coalition and win national elections. The only choice they have, like especially especially if you're thinking in terms of the density divide that I'm talking about, you have to move into higher population densities to start winning national elections. And if you start getting inside the outer suburbs, you're getting into more diverse populations. You're getting into higher educated populations. So you're going to have to pick up non-white vote share. You're going to have to pick up some of the college educated vote share that Republican Party has just recently lost. And in order to do that, they have to fundamentally shift their set of priorities. They're going to have to tamp down the ethnocentric um, inferno that they've uh, ignited. Uh, They're going to have to moderate um, their views on social insurance and redistribution. Uh, There's a bunch of stuff that they're going to have to do. And the thing is, they still have the low density bonus, so they can easily win. They can easily hold on to um, national power 
for, you know, over and over again, just as long as they increase their non-white vote share a little bit every cycle. But doing that will fundamentally reshape what the Republican Party's um, priorities are. And we're trying to position ourselves to help um, shape those priorities before it needs to happen, right? Like everybody talks about Overton's window, right? Like you have to you have to be ready to get through it. And that's something that we're both trying to make happen. We'd like to precipitate that catastrophic failure of the Trump GOP party um, and be there on the scene when it collapses to put something that's actually reasonable uh, in its place. And the effect of that, because Republican polarization is making governance impossible is effectively to bring the entire politics of the United States of America uh, by bringing, you know, if you bring the Republican Party towards the center, you've made American politics, you've just shifted it all to the left. I, I don't think anything that could happen to American politics would be as important as sort of winding down and reversing some of the the asymmetric polarization of the right. But unfortunately, while I'd like to go for hours more on this, I'm about to get kicked out of this studio. So I'm going to get your three <laughs> books and put them in show notes. Um, but Will Wilkinson, thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Thank you to Will. Um, that was a great conversation. Uh, his books are in the show notes. If you go to where you downloaded the podcast and you click on the description, you'll find them there. I'm sorry we just ran out of time. I really do feel like this one could have gone a lot longer. One of the things I'm trying to do, I've played around with doing more in intros, but I'm trying to do a little bit more here, sort of offer a part of the conversation, because there's a lot in these, <laughs> at least offer the part of the conversation that stood out to me, take a moment and reflect on it. And, and so I do want to dig in for a minute into this idea of elective affinities. This is one of these concepts that has come to me to help explain a lot. And it, it explains it in two ways. One is this idea that the way we choose, the way we imagine ourselves choosing where we live what we believe, who we associate with, uh, what we want to read, what we want to watch on television. The idea that that is this rational choice set that we make as opposed to something that is at least partially coming out of very deep temperamental and psychological dimensions of us, things that are, are seem to be installed in our software from birth. Um, it's wrong. It's we are we are driven by much more than we are rationally able to detect. And so this idea that we're not just choosing ideas, but ideas are choosing us. They're ideas that work for certain kinds of people that we're not just choosing place, but places choosing us or places that work for certain kind of people. Um, this seems very true. But to describe for it to matter for politics now, for it to help explain anything going on, you also have to explain change. It's not like we've become very different people over the past 30 years. But something that has changed is what economists would call matching, our ability to match to ideas, to places, to groups, to parties, to politicians that really reflect us. Um, you know, the obvious example here is in the media where, you know, 30 years ago, your choices were limited and now you can choose the most fine grained media outlets, podcasts, thinkers, writers uh, to appeal to exactly the kinds of things you believe or exactly the kind of person more often that you are. Similarly with place, similarly with parties, right? Something I've talked about a lot on the show is that the parties are much more different from each other. And so it's much easier to know which one you belong to. And so it's this combination of the fact that we have these affinities for different kinds of groups, but then the fact that our society is becoming oriented and architected. So we have many more choices and we can make many more choices. That's really important. That's allowing us to 
drive into much more distinct groups. And then it's allowing people who want to appeal to those groups, be they business people, right, folks who are trying to sell you something or ideological entrepreneurs or whatever it might be, to then keep sort of activating those parts of us and pulling us further and further and further apart. And as these things stack on top of each other, you're in a low density area and you watch Fox News and, and, and the divisions in society get deeper. So that to me is something that gets a little underplayed here. There's this interaction of what our underlying psychologies and temperaments are and what choices we have. And the interaction between those things have changed as our choices have really exploded, as our ability to have information about the world around us has really exploded. This is a way in which I think we believe the internet and so many things that have brought us so much more knowledge would make us more enlightened. And instead, in certain ways, it is allowing us to satisfy more visceral parts of ourselves more efficiently than we could before. Sometimes there might be some amount of what we imagine is enlightenment, uh, the ability to be more thoughtful, to, to be open to more kinds of people in a slightly less efficient way of living. Um, anyway, so thank you to Will for that very thought-provoking conversation, to all of you for being here for it, to Topher Ruth for engineering it, Jeffrey Geld for producing it. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.